Good morning, good morning. My name is Matt Howell, and I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we are in this strange season where we're doing church online in this safer-at-home world that we're in right now, and so we're we're doing what I'm going to call from now on Virch Church, virtual church. Uh, Wow. Okay, so if you're joining us virtually, we want to welcome you to Redeemer, and regardless of how you find yourself joining us this morning, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. If you find yourself grieved and angry and hurt from this past week's events, uh, scared, shocked, numb, however you find yourself, we're glad that you've chosen to be with us. If you consider yourself a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent or you don't really know what you are, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to Redeemer. If you consider yourself a Christian or if you don't consider yourself a Christian or if you don't know what you think or don't care about what you think about spiritual things, we're just glad that to, glad to have you with us here at Redeemer. Welcome to Redeemer. Well, what is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we are trying to learn how to love. We're trying to learn how to love our God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect his love here in Midtown Memphis. And uh, we are now in this season of Epiphany, which is this season of the church calendar where the church has historically celebrated the revelation of who Jesus is, that he is the savior of the world. He's the savior not just for people like us, not just for us, not for people that just look like us and think like us and vote like us. He's the, he's the savior of the nations. It's the season where the church celebrates the mission of God. And so in order to help us love God and love our neighbors here in Midtown, what we're going to do for this season of Epiphany is we're going to look at the book of First Peter. And here's kind of why I want to do that. Here's how I want to set this up. If you're anything like me and our family, what we did over the Christmas break is that we watched the movie Elf. This is kind of our family Christmas tradition. We watch that every year as as well as Home Alone. And uh, if you remember Buddy the Elf, he leaves the North Pole and he goes down to the strange new world called New York City. And as soon as he walks through the Lincoln Tunnel, he, he looks out into this beautiful, glorious new world, and he's looking at it, and he's thinking to himself, okay, where am I? It's beautiful, but it's also confusing to him. I mean, people are handing him flyers and leaflets, and he's just collecting them. Uh, it, it's, it's also painful. He doesn't really understand how traffic rules work, and so he just walks out into the street, and cars hit him, and he flips up over the hood of the car. Um, it's also pretty uh, awkward. I mean, he looks like an idiot when he walks into that one restaurant and he announces, you know, congratulations, you've made the, the world's best cup of coffee. I mean, he looks like an idiot when he's, when he's picking out the you know, gum from under the hand railings and he's eating it. And so he, he is clumsily, awkwardly navigating this strange new world that he happens to find himself in. And I bring that up because the world that we find ourselves in today has dramatically, drastically changed. Uh, The political landscape has totally changed. The world has been turned upside down by COVID. Uh, And things have changed pretty dramatically spiritually, especially over the past 30 years or so. In fact, sociologists are calling the culture that we now occupy, they're referring to it as post-Christian 
It's not a surprise that the church has been in a steadily uh, decline in the West for the past number of years. Uh, Listen to this. More than two-thirds of the churches in the United States are either plateauing or in decline or are in decline right now. More than two-thirds of the churches in the United States, plateauing or are in decline. Uh, In the United States, over 100 million people have no contact with the church. Over 85 million have never been to a worship service ever and have no intention of ever going to one, which means it doesn't matter how engaging our worship service is. It doesn't matter how welcoming we are when there are tons of people that this church exists to reach that will never walk through our doors, will never join an online virch church service this is the world we're in. I recently heard another pastor, who uh, Rankin Wilburn, who I got a lot of help from uh, this sermon on. He quoted a book called After Christendom, where the author Stuart Murray lists out all these different ways where the, where the culture has shifted from what he calls Christendom to post-Christendom. And I just want to give you three of these really quick as we kind of get going here. Three ways that the culture has shifted from Christendom to post-Christendom. Here's the first. From the center to the margins. Here's what he means. In Christendom, the Christian story was front and center for our culture. And for years, especially in the South, uh, there were tons of cultural benefits to identifying yourself as a Christian. There, there were social perks. For example, I read, I read this recently that in our country, there has never been a president that has not at least claimed to be a Christian. Never. In the history of our country, has there been a president that hasn't at least claimed to be a Christian, which is pretty fascinating. But in post-Christendom, the Christian story is no longer central, but it's marginal. It's pushed to the edges, which means that being a Christian means that you are losing social incentives. There are less and less perks, socially speaking, to being a Christian. That's the first kind of mark. Here's the second one. From majority to minority… And what he means is in, Christian, in Christendom, Christians comprised the majority of the population. So, for example, um, you could just say Merry Christmas to strangers because you just assumed, of course, they're going to be celebrating Chris, Christmas. You're just assuming the Christian faith for the world around you. Um, for example, I was speaking with one of our neighbors in Midtown who's not a religious person, and they were telling me when, when she moved to Midtown a number of years ago, it was just normal when people met her to ask her the question, oh, where do you go to church? It was just assumed. You go to church somewhere. Well, where is it? But things have changed, and in post-Christendom, Christians are not the majority but the minority. And you can no longer just assume if you're a Christian that everybody in the world around you believes the same thing that you do. And here's the third little shift. Things have shifted from being settlers to sojourners. Settlers to sojourners. In Christendom, Christians felt at home in a culture that was shaped by their story. And so Christians had a lot of religious liberty, a lot of religious rights. But in post-Christendom, 
Christians are aliens and strangers in a culture where they are increasingly feeling less and less at home. And there are some places in the world, even in our state, where they're right in the middle of this transition. For example, you might know before I became the senior pastor here, I was the RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee. And on one occasion, I had the opportunity to pray before a football game at Neyland Stadium, which is fascinating. They're still doing an invocation with a stadium with, you know, over 100,000 people packed in it, which is, you know, it's fascinating. It's one of these interesting relics of Christendom where they still want religious-y, Christian-y stuff like prayer done at sporting events, but there was, there was the catch. They said, we, you know, you're welcome to pray here. We want you to pray here, but you can't use the name Jesus. They're transitioning away from this overt, explicit, Jesus-y, Christian stuff, but they still kind of wanted some Christian-y things. Anyway, all of that to say, the world has changed. This is the world that we woke up in this morning. We live in a post-Christian culture. We also live in COVID land, and we're experiencing a political dumpster fire. But this is the world that we live in, and this is why many of us feel like Buddy the Elf in New York City, where we're, we feel awkward, we feel confused, we feel scared. What does it look like to be the church in a culture like this? That's what First Peter is actually all about. That's what First Peter is trying to address. What does it look like to be the church in a culture like this? Peter wrote this letter to a church that was likewise living in a world that had been turned upside down. It was a culture that was actually a lot more hostile to their faith in Peter's day. And so I think it would be wise to take this season and to reflect on this letter and to hear what Peter might have to say for us. And so I want to start just where Peter starts he opens up his letter by reminding the church who we fundamentally are. Look at verse 1. He refers to us as elect exiles. Elect exiles. He begins by looking at Christians out in the world and saying, you need to know what your identity is. You are elect exiles. And so for the rest of our time this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to just take those two words and unpack them. Elect exile. But we're going to do it in reverse order. So, first, what does it mean to be an exile? What does, he, what does he mean when he refers to followers of Jesus as exiles? To be an exile means that you are living somewhere that's not your home. Other translations use words like sojourners or strangers. Some, some, some translations use resident aliens. You can use, uh, you might, other, you might use uh, words like refugees or immigrants, or pilgrims. This is how Peter is referring to Christians, exiles. Uh, think about um, a foreign exchange student. You know, when I was in middle school, my older sister was enrolled in the foreign exchange program where there was this young lady from Italy that flew over and lived with us for a number of weeks where she studied and, and, and lived here, and she worked here, and she kind of did life with us for, a, you know, a little season. But what's fascinating, she lived here and she worked here and she studied here, but her citizenship was elsewhere. Her value system came from elsewhere. Her, her behavioral customs, you know, was all, you know, from her Italian heritage. 
In the same way, Peter is looking at Christians, people that live here, play here, work here. In fact, he lists out all these different cities and regions where Christians are scattered. You see that in verse 1, Galatia and Cappadocia, on and on. He's saying, we live here, we work here, but to be in exile means that our citizenship is in heaven. For us, here we are, we're Christians and we live in America, yes, but our primary allegiance is not to a flag. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of Jesus, and our value system is no longer shaped by being American. Our value system is shaped by our home country, by heaven itself. This is why Christian nationalism is a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, we, we aren't Christian nationalists. We are exiles. We live here. We're exiles in America, but we're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. And here's what's weird, though. Peter is talking to people in that culture that looked like they were from that culture, meaning these were people that looked like everyone around them. They spoke the same language. They, they grew up and probably had uh, family, and you know, they've, they've been there for generations, and yet Jesus, or, sorry, Peter refers to them as, as foreigners. This would be like somebody being a native Memphian. Who, who grew up here. They went to high school at Central High School. You know, they, they went to, you know, graduated from the University of Memphis. They work downtown, and then they become a Christian, and then Peter looks at them and says, oh, by the way, now that you're a Christian, you're a foreigner here. You're an exile here. Miroslav Volf, who is a professor at Yale University, he says this, there is a new estrangement which a Christian way of life creates Meaning, when you become a Christian, you, you become estranged from the culture that you live in. You, you become alienated in some way from the social fabric that you're from. Okay, how though? It's really fascinating. In his book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado asks this fascinating question. He says, okay, why did the early church grow so fast and so rapidly? Why did it grow when there were absolutely zero social benefits at that time? Because to be a Christian in you know, the first few centuries of, uh, you know, in Roman culture, uh, to out yourself as a Christian uh, threatened your life, it threatened your family, it threatened your job. There, there were no benefits, socially speaking, to being a Christian. So why did it get any traction? Why did it grow? And here's what he says. He says part of the reason he, he proposes why Christianity grew so much was that because Christianity created a, a radically different counterculture. Christianity created a, a, a community of people that defied all of the pre-existing categories. And he lists out five, five ways that the early church was a counterculture. I'll list them here briefly. He says the early church was first multiracial and multi-ethnic. It brought together people and races of people that got along in the church that didn't get along out there in the world. Multiracial. Second, highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. Third, the early church was non-retaliatory. It was, it was marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Fourth, they were strongly and practically against infanticide and abortion. Fifth, they revolutionized the sex ethic, meaning they insisted that sex was designed by God to function within the context of marriage between a man and a wife. Now, you look at that list and you think, okay, the first two, uh, being multi-ethnic and caring for the poor, that sounds very liberal and progressive. 
The last two, being uh, against infanticide and revolutionizing the sex ethic, sounds very conservative. And the, the third one, the middle one, being non-retaliatory, that doesn't even compute to Americans who live in kind of an outrage culture. But here's the point. He's saying the Christian value system doesn't fit into any of our existing paradigms, and it doesn't exist into our modern paradigms either. This is what Peter is saying. To be a follower of Jesus means that you become a foreigner in your own culture. You adopt a way of life that doesn't really fit in. You are seen as weird and strange and different. To be a church here in Midtown Memphis and to say we denounce white supremacy and we believe what the Bible says about sexuality and we are committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized and we think Jesus is the only way to salvation, that is really strange. That doesn't fit into any person's present categories. We're exiles. But here's what I want you to notice. Peter is not upset about this. He is not lamenting the fact that faith in Christ makes us exiles. He is not fighting for this reality to change. In fact, he even tells you later in the letter when we get there, he says, do not be surprised by this. You need to expect exclusion for your nonconformity. You are very different and the world does not like different. Expect it. Now, that's the first aspect of our identity that he wants to highlight. We are exiles. We, we are permanent residents here, yes, but our values and our allegiance and our customs come from somewhere else, namely heaven itself, the kingdom of God. But secondly, here's the second feature of our identity. We're not just exiles, we are elect exiles. Elect. What does that mean? I know, I know for some, certain people that word can be a bit of a loaded term, to, to, because it essentially means to be chosen by God, to be elected by God. This is language that was actually taken right out of the Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel. God elected Israel, not just for salvation though, but also for mission. In fact, if you go to Genesis 12, when God initiates this relationship with Abraham and his descendants, he comes to him and he doesn't choose Abraham just so that his blessing could flow to him, but so that God's blessing could flow through him. He says to Abraham, I am going to bless you and I am going to make your name great so that you might be a blessing to the world. Here's what this means, to be elected to, you know, when he elects Abraham and his, and his descendants, he's electing them to be instruments of blessing to the world. That's what's behind this word elect. Now, we, my family and I used to have season passes to Dollywood, which as you might know, is this amazing theme park in East Tennessee. And we would go and we'd go on the rides and we would eat their famous unbelievable cinnamon bread and get corn dogs and go on more rides and then feel nauseous and then we'd kind of call it a day and go home. It was amazing. We loved it. We went and used it for all that it had to offer. But if I think about it, I, I was never and have never really been interested in like investing in Dollywood. I don't show up to try to make the place better. I don't show up to give to Dollywood. I show up 100% as a taker. 
I am there to use and consume everything it has available. That's how most people relate to the cities that they live in. The default setting is to take, not to give. Most people in Memphis relate to Midtown like it's a bit of a theme park. Uh, it's just here for you to use, and because it's awesome, it has amazing amenities. It's got some of the best food in the city. It's got amazing uh, parks here, incredible art, and, uh, and shopping, and music, and culture, and people. But Peter wants us to relate to our city differently. That's what it means to be elect exiles. We are chosen by God to seek the common good of the cities where he has put us in, which means we aren't just visitors that are dropped in with our fanny packs to do some sightseeing and eat some of the local food, and then we're going to go back home. What it means to be elect exiles means that we live in this place and we participate in this place so that we might bless this place. Here's the question, though. How can we be distinct from the culture, which means we're exiles, and at the same time committed to the well-being of the culture, which is what it means to be elect. How can we do both at the same time? Well, Peter gives us these three phrases in verse 2 that I just want to highlight with you briefly, and then we're done. Here's the first little phrase he gives you in verse 2. He says that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Peter is saying, God the Father has chosen to set his love on you before the foundation of the world. This means that your, this means that his love was not provoked. We didn't do anything to activate it or trigger it. In fact, we weren't even around yet. He, before the foundation of the world, he had you in mind and he chose to set his love on you. And here's why this is important. This means Peter wants you to know when you feel out of place in this world, you are at home with the Father. When the world mocks you and rejects you and thinks that your views are offensive and even dangerous, Peter wants you to know the Father delights in you, that he has chosen you. He loves you not because you provided a reason for him to love you, but he loves you simply because he loves you. Here's the second phrase. In the sanctification of the Spirit... Sanctification just means to be set apart. For example, every night I, I, I get our coffee pot ready so that it's, it's, it's ready and it's on in the morning. And we have this kind of whole uh, cabinet of coffee mugs. And every night when I'm getting the coffee ready, I pull out one mug and I set it on the counter so that it's just there, ready for me. Coffee's ready, pour, go. I have set apart this mug from all of the rest for this specific purpose. What Peter is saying is in the same way, God sends his spirit to people to set them apart for a very specific purpose. But what he does is he doesn't just give you a job and say, okay, go bless the world and have fun on your own. He sends his spirit to indwell you that as you go on this mission, he is with you, equipping you, strengthening you, with you for this very thing that he's called you to do. And here's the final phrase. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Why does God the Father elect you and set you apart by his spirit? What's the point? What's the end goal? He tells you, for obedience 
to Jesus Christ. The end goal is that we might obey Jesus, which raises the question, what does Jesus want us to do? To love God and to love our neighbor. And then this little phrase he tacks on at the end, and for sprinkling with his blood, what in the world does that mean? Well, I just want to use the last few minutes of our time to kind of unpack that. All the commentaries that I looked at agree that Peter is building off of this story from the Old Testament in Exodus 24. And I don't want to be irreverent. I think Exodus 24 is kind of comical because here's the context. God has just liberated his people from slavery. He's given them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The whole law is read to them, and then their response in Exodus 24, the people of Israel's response after hearing the whole law read to them in verse 7, here's what they say. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This is where Southerners would step in and say, bless their hearts because they are, they are so naive to think, okay, all the words that the Lord has said we will do, we will obey everything that he said, they have no idea how incapable of obeying God's laws they really are. But here's what's fascinating, God does. And so, right after they say that, in the very next verse, what Moses does is he takes this blood from the sacrificed oxen at the altar, and he just throws it on the people that are right there. I mean, can you imagine showing up at church and getting blood thrown on you? It's disgusting. I mean, if, you, if, if we did that to Redeemer, you know, Redeemer, you would be so mad if I just threw blood all over you. you, you would, uh, he just ruined my, my nice outfit. Why would he do this? Why does, Moses, why does Moses throw blood on people? Here's why. It's this graphic image to show everyone that atonement was needed. Your best intentions of obeying God are simply not good enough. Someone has to pay for your failures in the past and your failures in the future. And so Moses reminds them, you, you need to fear not. The sacrifice has been paid, and I'm going to show you by covering you in the blood of that sacrifice so that when you fail, when you leave here and you go try to obey and you fail, you will know in a visceral sense, I have been covered with the blood of the sacrifice. Your failures are paid for even before you go out there and commit them. And Peter takes that language and he hijacks that imagery to make the same point. Yes, you are called to obey Jesus, and you are covered in the blood of Jesus. Do you see how astounding this is? Peter is saying, okay, think about this. Do you know what God does to failures? Do you know what God does to people who he has chosen to bless the world, but instead they squander his mercy and they screw up over and over and over again? Do you know what he does to people like that? He has mercy on them. He covers them with the blood of his son, Jesus. This is why Peter concludes this little section, may, the grace and, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He means as your failures increase, as your sins stack up, 
may you experience ever-increasing grace and mercy and peace because they never run out. The grace never runs out. It's bottomless. That's how you're going to be able to walk out of your living room, walk out of this church, and go out into a world that is hostile to your faith and to give yourself over in love for them. That's how you're going to be able to do it because you have a God that loves you before the foundation of the world. You have a God that is dwelling with you by his very spirit, and you have a God that is pouring out bottomless, endless grace upon you in Jesus. That's how you can do it. Elect exiles. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to lean into this identity of who we really are in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to live in to this calling of being elect exiles, strange and different from the culture, and yet called to give ourselves for it. Help us to know how to do that in these strange and dark and upsetting and troubling times. Help us to know when to speak and when to be silent. Help us to know when to give of ourselves for our neighbors, when to listen, when to repent, when to um, engage. Help us navigate the complexity of the world that we're in by your spirit and motivate us by your love, we pray in Jesus' name.